Hey everyone, welcome back to Here in Apologetics. I'm so pumped you're joining us today to have Jordan Burke, and we're going to be talking about a book published by Sophia Institute Press called The Pope's Exorcist, 101 Questions About Fire, Gabriel Amorth. Uh, we're going to get rolling with that in just a minute, but if you're new here, I encourage you to like, subscribe, all that fun stuff. And if you value what we do, uh, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com. We have a goal of just a very simple goal of one new patron a month. Um, so if you're listening to this, that could be you. Uh, go find the link at patreon.com. And you can subscribe for as little as a dollar a month. That would be huge. Um, we'll keep you updated on the community tab and Twitter uh, as we meet our goals. But let's get rolling. So, Jordan, welcome. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Well, uh, today we're going to be talking about this book, um, The Pope's Exorcist. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about like who you are and what you do before we get rolling? Sure. Yeah, we can do that. Uh, my name is Jordan Burke. I work primarily for the Avila Foundation, which houses uh, spiritualdirection.com, the Avila Institute, Apostolate VA, my own apostolate, uh, which is called Do the Harder Thing. And we are all things spiritual, Catholic, mysticism, everything good, orthodox and holy. And then uh, we also work closely with Sophia Press, and they asked me to be the spokesperson for this book, The Pope's Exorcist, 101 Questions About Father Gabriel and Morth, um, because that's kind of my primary area of study right now. And uh, of course, I said yes, because I, I love Father Morth, and I've read pretty much all of his books, and, and it's it's I love this book as well. So um, that's how it happened. And, you know, I have a past i was a police officer i'm a father i'm all you know all these other things but that's kind of not important to the <laughs> conversation so you can find that online that's not important for today but yeah mm, awesome well let's get rolling because we're talking about friar amorth do you want to talk a little bit about like who is this guy that we're talking about yeah so father amorth was an exorcist for the vatican he he has a really interesting beginning story because when you kind of one of the things we do at at the Avila Institute or the Avila Foundation is we have something called the High Calling Program. So we assist guys who are uh, entering into the propedeutic year for seminary. So it's it's interesting learning about that kind of process and then learning about Father Morse's process because Father Morse felt the call to the priesthood when he was younger, but he didn't actually become a priest until he was in, I believe he was like 30 something years old. So he felt the call. Uh, he was born in, I should say he was born in May 1st, 1925. So this was a while ago, but he's still fairly modern because he died in uh, 2016 at the age of 91 years old. But prior to him entering into the priesthood, he actually fought in World War II for the resistance. And then what's even more fascinating to me, at least, is that later on, after he fought for the resistance, he dabbled in politics. And so he actually helped the Italian prime minister at the time write their constitution. So this guy was involved in all these other different things. So then later on, he, you know, his, uh, we'll pr probably get into this, but Padre Pio was his spiritual director. So he has a crossover with Padre Pio. And when he becomes, when he's 32 years old is when he actually becomes ordained a priest. Now that's all interesting in and of itself. What's even more like another layer of fascination on top of that is that he didn't become an exorcist until he was in his 60s. So from 60-something years old to 90-something years old, he's performing these exorcisms. And at such an astonishing rate, and again, we'll get into that, that he amassed all this kind of information and experience that he felt really called to share. Um, and so that's kind of one of the reasons why he's so prolific is because of his experience, what he experienced being an exorcist in Rome, um, and then giving out all this information, writing multiple books, multiple interviews, all that sort of, all that sort of thing. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. This is super interesting. Um, 
talk a little bit about like so we have this guy like Friar Morth, um, who has a really interesting life. He talked about like like fighting World War II as a resistance fighter, like getting into politics, um, going into the priesthood, and he becomes like an exorcist. Talk a little bit a little bit about like what did like his life look like as an exorcist? Because um, if you read the numbers, is you're like this guy like performed like fifty thousand, hundred thousand exorcisms, like what? Um, yeah. yeah, talk a little bit about his life and what he's doing. Right. So his estimation in this book and some of the other books, he says, if I was to guess at how many exorcisms that I performed over my career as an exorcist, again, from 60s to 90s, so it's a very short period of time, he estimated that he performed over 60,000 exorcisms. And to put that in context, because that's a wild number, but to put that in context, you know, we're talking about may, we're talking about some people needing multiple sessions. So he's not talking about 60,000 individual people who, who needed exorcisms rather 60,000 exorcism sessions because it's impossible to remember how many people he actually uh, met with. And the reason that he could kind of figure out that number is because at the beginning when he when he became an exorcist, went through that process, uh, at the start he was seeing upwards to 17 people a day, which I can't even fathom. So I, I've, I've met with multiple exorcists. We work with multiple exorcists all the time. I've observed different things in deliverance sessions. And the idea of of someone, an exorcist, meeting 17 people a day and performing, you know, 17, it's just, it's just mind blowing. And not, of course, not all of them are what we see in the movies. There's realism and there's not realism to what is kind of out there. Some are intense, some are not, but still it's, it's still an intensive process and it's intensive spiritual process. And it really goes to show that he was a fighter you know, he was a man of God in the sense that he relied not on his own power, because he often said he was a good for nothing, but he relied on the power of God to help him help other people. And so his heart for service and his heart for helping other people through this process really is exhibited, not just in in what he did and the number of people that he saw, but in the information that he put out. So he starts off seeing like 17 something people a day and realizes this is not sustainable. So he, he lowers it. But he's still just serving, constant service, constant service, constant service. Um, and I think, if I remember correctly, you know, in that number, so 60,000, he would see certain people upwards. I think he said the most serious cases were upwards of 50 times for a person. And we're talking about, it's not just like back-to-back -back sessions. This could take years. And, and even um, more famously, I guess we could say, or infamously, I'm not sure which, he had one woman that he wasn't able to 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 quote unquote set free. She actually had to be passed on to his uh, protege, so to speak, the guy who kind of filled his shoes. Which, I, I've, I've, if memory serves, is Father Stanislaw was either after or before. I don't quite remember. Uh, regardless, <laughs> he was unable to set her free, and so he had to take on the case. And um, even he was his his protege was unable to set her free. So anyway, I'm giving a lot of information here, but that's kind of a, a kind of a overview of what that looked like what his daily uh his day-to-day -day looked like and the people he served and the number of people he served and all that kind of stuff mm -hmm. okay so what's like the if you were like to if there's like an estimate of how many exorcisms he performed in his life like what would that number look like jordan so he estimated sixty thousand. Mm -hmm. okay so when we're talking about like sixty thousand exorcisms um every i'm sure people listen like oh my gosh like that's a lot are we talking about like I think some people have a vision or like a picture of exorcisms in my mind. Like I have a pop culture vision where you go in a room um, and there's like some chanting or something like you pull out a demon. Um, is that what happened 60,000 times? Or like, what do we mean by exorcisms here? No. So if, if it's important to note that if someone is 
got to the point where they're actually seeing an exorcist, they've gone through a process that's set forth by the church to determine that that person actually needs to meet with an exorcist, meaning that the exorcist is going to perform a solemn rite of exorcism. So that process is, uh, you know, psychologist interviews, interviews of the family. There's sometimes medical stuff that goes on. They're trying to rule out any sort of potentiality of it not being a demon. We're not, the church never assumes right off the bat that, yeah, this person is possessed. They won't, they, they know that it's a possibility, but they want to say, well, maybe this person just has a mental illness, or maybe this person just has wounds that need healing. In some cases, unfortunately, people fake it. So that's another reason why there is a process involved. So if they've gone through this process, they have determined that, yeah, this person is probably possessed and in the need of a solemn rite of exorcism. So then they go see Father Amorth. But in, in the solemn rite of exorcism, more pointed to your question, it can range from anything I've, I've heard. It may have been Father Amorth or another exorcist who said sometimes it's just like going to the dentist. It's just like a checkup. You just go and, you know, we do the prayers and it is what it is and it's OK. And then there's other times where you have kind of the more extreme, <clears throat> extreme end of things where people are. Um, spitting and and uh, have to be held down and kept from harming themselves or somebody else, you know, kind of you have really the 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 wild end of the spectrum of uh, people who um, uh, regurgitate items. Uh, Father Morth writes about that in the book and, and in, in several of his other books. Um, some people levitate, you know, there's all these other different things. Uh, so it's a wide range, you know, it's 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 hard to say he never really is clear about what the most common experience was but it they're not all I, I should just say each case is different because each demon afflicts people differently and even though you might come across one demon multiple times in different people it doesn't mean that every time it's going to be someone's levitating or every time it's a dentist appointment it could you know it's a wide range mm. okay yeah that's helpful and i want to get into that a little bit later about like that kind of stuff um so he was an exorcist, like during his, like his, like life in the priesthood, like what else did Fire Amorth do beyond like exorcisms? So when he started out, he was actually in charge of kind of a, a media publication. And so he was used to writing and speaking news articles and things like that. I, I, it's escaping me at the moment, the name of the publication of what it was, but it was a particular, I think it was the order of Pauline's that may be correct. Um, someone could fact check me on that, but he was involved in media and he was involved in teaching. Um, and that was a big portion of, of what he did prior to becoming an exorcist. And then what's kind of more important though is, well, subsequently important because that allowed him to share the information that he shared from learning the exorcisms. But after he became an exorcist, he formed the IAE, which is the International Association of Exorcists, because he saw that, okay, well, hold on. We have you know, a limited number of exorcists across the world. And we're all using the formula that's provided by the church, the right, the, the right of exorcism. But they're all learning different things that like, oh, okay, maybe if we come across this demon, this particular invocation of a saint, this particular saint's invocation is really effective against this demon. Or, you know, like recently I was, or somewhat recently I was up with the exorcist in DC and they were telling me about how the breastplate of St. Patrick prayer is really effective in helping them free people. Um, so those sorts of bits and pieces of information that don't get shared outside of those exorcists unless they have another exorcist friend that they share it with. Father Morth forms the IAE to kind of say, let's take all of this information and give it to all the exorcists because the goal is to set people free. The goal is to set captives free, is, is to help people come to Christ, to be relieved, to have the chains broken, to have wounds healed. And in order to do that, we all need to be sharing as much information as possible. So that's kind of one of the 
one of the purposes of why the IAE was created and still exists today. I think uh, Father, uh, memory serves, Father Bamonte, I believe, is now in charge of the IAE, um, who's also written several books on exorcism and these sorts of things. So it's really important, uh, important and profound work that he did. Okay, yeah, that's super helpful. So thank you for Jordan. Um, so when we're looking at Friar Morth, like, what did his daily schedule look like when he's doing like, um, like you talked about, like from his like sixties to his nineties, when he's doing all these exorcisms, like day to day, like what did his life look like? So waking up prayer, you know, preparing the, the blessing of the holy water, the exercise salt, the sa various different sacramentals that were going to be used in the process. And he writes, it was kind of funny, you know, any, and father Morth had such a sense of humor anyway, but he, uh, he, he wrote, yeah, it was kind of great for people who came to, to, to assist because they would always get like extra holy water or extra exercise salt or stuff like that. So he prepares the sacramentals um, and it just a lot of prayer and preparation for, for serving people. And he just serve, serve folks, whoever came, whoever was on the schedule, uh, they would come and he'd, he'd do what he needed to do and hopefully, you know, help them get free or, or learn or, you know, whatever the case may be. But at that point in time, he was given, as I mentioned, I mean, you're seeing 17 people a day. And if the sessions are taking, I don't know, you know, 30 minutes per visit, I think is what he wrote. That's a long time and it's very exhausting. So that's really what you're hammering into. So what's the process like? So for someone to end up on like prior, like Friarmouth's schedule, uh, what's like kind of like the process of like someone like the church recognizing like, oh, someone has like a demon or something where they actually like have an exorcist like appointment or something like that? Yeah. So if there's someone out there who feels like they might be possessed, uh, they have to reach out to their local diocese and the diocese is going to put them through that process that I mentioned earlier, which is we're going to interview you. We're going to interview your family members. If applicable, we're going to you're going to have to meet with a psychologist. Um, you're going to have to there might be some medical things going on. And as I mentioned, it's, it's just the church saying there is a reality that there are a lot of people out there who believe that they're possessed who are not actually possessed. And that's not to say that they're not potentially demonically oppressed or influenced in some way, right? Because we know the devil prowls about like a roaring lion seeking for souls to devour. So there's always that tension and that battle that's going on, but to what level? So the process that these people are going through is to determine whether or not it rises to the level of actually needing an exorcism and meeting with an exorcist. So even they can they can go through that process and determine, okay, that's probably this person is probably possessed, or there's a high likelihood that they're possessed. But even still, they can't say for sure that they're possessed until they meet with the exorcist. So it it kind of, you know, I mentioned there's people who fake it, which is really unfortunate. <clears throat> there's mental illness, and and it's important to note that the church doesn't say. You know, if there's someone out there who's listening to this and they're like, well, I don't want to go through this process because I think I have something going on and they might write me off. That's not the case. If if you think you have something going on and the church says, well, we've met with these experts and they say that it's not possession, it's probably explained by some sort of psychological disorder. They're going to try to assist you to help you through what you need to get free. It's not like we're just writing you off. The church doesn't just write you off and let you go. So that's important to know. But um they once they go through that process, then they meet with the exorcist, and then the exorcist will do particular things in order to determine whether or not there is a need of a solemn rite of exorcism because it's a serious thing. It's it's very important, and and that can be anything from you know different exorcists will will um, use different tactics, but it, it could 
I'll, I'll say this. So some of the main signs of possession are uh, hidden knowledge, thing, knowing things that you can't know, speaking a different, which would involve like speaking different languages, strength. And then uh, the third is escaping me off the top of my mind. But there's like three that are really, uh, really like key indicators. Right. And there's cursory indicators, of course, but it's it's those are there's three that are like main ones. Right. And so what will happen is some of these exorcists will, let's say they'll have a relic of a saint and they'll hide it somewhere, you know, or they'll have an envelope or something like that, or they'll use holy water and like very uh, sneakily, not in a negative way, but like sneakily put holy water on the person and see if there's a reaction. There's these different point is there's different tactics that they use to, to try to determine whether or not, and, and quite frankly, to see if the demon will manifest itself um, to determine whether or not, okay, yes, we actually need to do an exorcism. And Father Morth wrote quite frequent, frequently, uh, excuse me, that he said, you know, an exorcism never hurt anybody. So his stance was, if you've come to me and we still don't know for sure, I'm just going to pray some of the prayers of exorcism because it's not going to harm you. But if if nothing happens, then you're probably not possessed. But if something happens and you are, and we're already doing the rite of exorcism. So it kind of, it worked out really well that way. So. Okay, yeah, that's helpful. So it seems like to me, like the process um, designed by like the Catholic Church, it's really to like, not just like anyone like go through an exorcism, but it's really like to see like, hey, like we realize like, oh, there's mental illness. And there are these like issues that people have that aren't like demonic, like possession. And the process is kind of like, designed to help like try to figure that out to make sure like that's what's going on is like actually right. like a demonic possession. Right, exactly right. And and the problem is there's so many different psychological factors and illnesses and the reality is, and Father Bramante writes on this, is that demons can shield themselves in particular psychological disorders or can um, amplify particular psychological disorders. So it's really important that the church investigates to differentiate between what's actually going on versus what's perceived. Because obviously our perception is, is, is limited and it's broken and <clears throat> we can be looking for something that's not there. Um, I like Father Ripper says quite frequently, the devil's not under every rock. You know, we shouldn't always attribute everything evil to the devil. It's just not the case. Mm -hmm. um, so it's important to to go through that process and, and really determine what what help that person needs. Whatever that help is, we have to determine what it what it is exactly. Okay, that's very helpful. Thank you. Um, what's like the like maybe like you could go biblical and traditional. Like, what's the kind of like the roots for like exorcisms? Um, maybe some people are thinking like, was well, this just a very recent thing? Then all these like demonic like possessions are just popping up and like absent like of church history. Like, what's like if we're looking at the story of like this kind of like exorcism and demonic possession? What does that look like? Yeah. So the first exorcist was Jesus. I mean, hands down, like that's it. <laughs> you know, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's in the gospels. You read the gospels and he was casting out demons. And then even later on, you know, his apostles, some of the things that always struck me was, um, so Paul, right. One of the apostles, he was such a, a holy man after his conversion that his shadow, I, I believe it's written that his shadow would, would heal people and cast out demons. They take pieces of his, his uh, cloak. So relics, we're talking about relics now, and that would heal and cast out demons as well. So the history of exorcism goes way, 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 way back uh, into the gospels, into scripture, even including the reality of not necessarily a false exorcism, but where the power comes from directly. So if you read the story about the Jewish exorcists who go in to see a, a possessed young man and they say, in the name of Jesus and the name of Paul, we cast you out. And the demon response looks at them. This, it, this is a, a, one of my favorite stories. It's because it's so telling. 
Uh, it's so deeply theologically rich. The demon looks at these Jewish exorcists and say, Jesus I know, Paul I know, but who are you? And then the demon attacks them and strips them naked and beats them and runs them out. And so what does that tell us? It tells us that there's an authority structure that's put in place and that the demons recognize. You know, I don't know if you've ever heard this before, but uh, demons are very legalistic. Some, some exorcists call them lawyers from hell. So you can't, there's, there's a reality of this structure of, you know, even in apostolic succession, why could Paul do this versus somebody else? Well, because he, he was an apostle of Jesus. Like there was this apostolic succession that took place that occurred in which that provided him this ability to fulfill the mission of the church militant here by casting out, um, casting out the enemy. So it's it's deeply rich within the text of scripture, especially in the gospel. It goes way back. And then obviously from there forward, there's always been a tradition, even though we can't necessarily, uh, or I should say most people are can't just like pull up out of memory, like, oh yeah, in the 1700s, we did this. And in the 1500s, we did this. It's like, it doesn't mean it didn't happen. You know, it's it, we may not have a record of it or people had different misunderstandings, but the reality is from the foundation of the church, it was there and it was clear and church has it again today. So there's, there's, there wasn't a breaking point. There wasn't a point in time where the enemy wasn't trying to possess people. You know? So yeah, it's, it's, uh, it, it goes all the way back to Jesus. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's very helpful. Um, do you have like, maybe like when I asked the question, I was like, well, Jesus, obviously like you, like you think about like the gospels, like, do you have people like thinking like through church history? Um, maybe there's a few people you could point other people towards that, like through history we've seen have done like a lot of exorcism. Yeah, so um, I believe it was Athanasius, um, Cyprian, Irenaeus, and um, Tertullian were the ones mentioned in the book. Those are some, <clears throat> obviously, the apostles. And then you can just look at uh, the history of various different saints. So Saint Benedict, who I, I, I don't remember his story exactly. But obviously his medal is, is very powerful and it is used. Uh, St. Catherine of Siena, her prayer uh, was able to free people from, from demons, which is another fascinating instance. Um, and that it, I'm, not, I'm not falsely equating her prayers to exorcism because that's not what happened. But uh, the, the process of expelling demons from people, setting people free, through the unity of of the church in these saints it has a long long history so there's all sorts of stories about different saints um some of my favorites like i have saint Gemma behind me and i have padre pio over on on my other shoulder they also have stories of physically fighting with demons um whereas you know there's no that i'm aware of historical record for someone like saint Gemma who who cast out any demons in her time on earth she is really prominent in exorcisms today and uh, helping set people free um so there's all these different aspects of and primarily found in the saints but there are those historical uh examples of like cyprian and tertullian and, and things of that nature or people mm, of that okay. nature. yeah that's helpful thank you jordan so when we're thinking about like how these exorcisms work like when like Friar Morth is like going to like do these exorcisms day to day um, and his life in the Vatican, like what does an exorcism like look like? If you're in the room, like you said, you've been in the room, like what does an exorcism look like? So there's, I'm trying to think of how to articulate it, right? So you have people there. There's always somebody with you. If, if there's no exorcist, you should ever go into a room alone with somebody ever, 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 ever. 
Um, so they always almost they always have somebody with them if they're doing what they're supposed to be doing, right? And primarily that person is uh, providing intercessory prayer, which is it could be anything from you know if you have the uh, Catholic exorcism app, there's uh, intercessory prayer. There's like a list. It's like the litany of the saints, the litany of you know Saint Michael. There's all these other different prayers, um, including even praying the rosary. So like when I've assisted in a couple different deliverance sessions uh, through just uh, as an intercessory function. Um, you know, I pray these prayers and then I'm just praying the rosary the whole time. And if something comes up or if I see something, you know, I'm just saying, God, you know, according to your will, please help this person. Please help set them free according to your will. You know, Mary, please help this person. St. Joseph, please help this person. And all internally, obviously, I'm not saying any of it aloud because you, you don't ever want to distract from what's going on. Um, but you're just providing intercessory prayers. So there's intercessory prayers uh, or people doing intercessory prayers. Sometimes there's more than one. So as an example, both of my parents, uh, Dan and Stephanie Burke, uh, have assisted in <clears throat> 24 full ride exorcisms or something crazy like that. And that was similar situation. They're, they're praying, you know, intercessory prayer. Um, and that even speaks, this is kind of a rabbit trail here, but that even speaks to the power of a, of a healthy sacramental marriage, which is why they were initially asked to assist as intercessory, um, uh, praying intercessory prayers for these exorcisms by this exorcist. So that's another thing. Um, so there's the people praying the intercessory prayers, and then the exorcist is there with the sacramentals, uh, always with the crucifix, holy water, blessed salt, whatever he wants to use, purple stole. And uh, they're just praying. You know, it, 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 and it can be anything from the actual. So if it's a solemn rite of exorcism, they're going to be praying the actual solemn rite of exorcism, which is uh, prescribed by the church. It's like this prayer. And they're even limited to what they can do and what they can't do. So um, you can't you can you can ask or rather it's really important for the exorcist to determine the name of the demon. Right. So most people think mm -hmm. like you should never ask for the name of demon. Well, for exorcists, they have to. What they can't ask, they can't get curious and just ask a bunch of other questions because it, you know, demons lie and there's all these other different things that go on. But if you can determine the name of the demon, you, that helps the exorcist determine the doorway that was opened that allowed the demon to come in, right? Mm. And in that, you can also determine how to better set that person for you, how to help that person. And even knowing who they are, knowing who the demon is, you can find a particular saint that uh, was really effective in combating that demon, whatever, you know, what, with whatever particular ailment they're afflicting on the person uh, and you can invoke that saint. So, so that's important, but it's, it's just, it's like this prayerful experience where yes, things can get crazy and, and, you know, uh, people can throw up and people can spit and people can levitate and all these other different things. But the reality is it's this beautiful this beautiful time where the exorcist is through the power of God, because the exorcist is only any exorcist who, who knows what they're doing will say this. I mean, Father Amorth said this multiple times. He's not doing anything. It's God with the power of God helping set somebody free. And this beautiful moment of this person who maybe they were afflicted by a curse and, and, you know, they didn't bring this on by their own sin. They were just afflicted. Or maybe they did bring it on by their own sin. You know, mortal sin is a huge doorway, habitual mortal, mortal sin, especially. Um, but them, that person turning away from the evil that they chose and giving themselves to God and seeing the power of God and the power of our lady and the power of the saints 
interceding out of love for this person to break the chains of the enemy who's, who's seeking to bring them down. It's really kind of a beautiful, uh, beautiful thing. Yeah, it is a really beautiful thing. Are there like common like demons that like Friar Morth would like run into? Like, is like, I don't know, like how that all works. Yeah. So you can have uh, a demon afflict multiple because so, so fallen angels, demons are, are spirits, right? They're pure spirits. So they can afflict. What that means is they're not bound by, by time uh, particularly that, but so they can afflict multiple different people at the same time. So you can have one demon that's possessing multiple people. Right. Um, so I say that to say that I say that to say that that's not good English. <laughs> it's still early. Uh, my caffeine hasn't kicked in yet. Uh, I say that to explain the, the, the opportunity or the moments where uh, Father Amorth would have potentially come across the same demon multiple times, right? And during his career. Um, now, most famously, he writes about in, in this book and others, his very first exorcism, he came across Satan himself. So uh, that's, uh, that's wild. I mean, if you're gonna if you're gonna jump in and you you come up against Satan himself, I mean, that's got to be mm. a, a powerful experience. Um, so yeah, so there's there's a bunch. You know, there's common ones. Father Ripperger kind of talks about like this round table of demons. There's particular demons that uh, cause that are in charge of particular types of mayhem, so to speak. So um, certain chaotic things that are going on in the world. If it's going down a particular trail or if it's affecting people in a particular way, you can kind of assume that it's this particular demon, so to speak. Um, so, yeah. So, so I don't know if that answers your question, but yeah. Yeah, no, that, that's very helpful. Thank you. Um, when we're looking at like exorcisms and like tracing like the history of exorcisms, is this something that you only see in like the Catholic tradition or like if you look at like the Orthodox, or, like the Protestants, like do you see our exorcisms like a part of like their spiritual yeah. like things? Yeah, so interestingly enough, uh, Father Morth kind of laments uh, some of the red tape, so to speak, in the process of the church. Um, but it was, it, it was when you read all of his works, it's it's evident that it just comes from a place of love for the people who are afflicted. So he writes about how, like the Orthodox, you can just go and like ring a bell and you can get an exorcist. Like, there's no issue there. And you know, in the Catholic Church, obviously, we have set aside where a bishop has to appoint an exorcist. A priest can't just like decide one day that they want to become an exorcist they have to be appointed um so the process is a little different for the orthodox church so like any priest i, I believe if i understand correctly they can just go and, and uh, exercise people now in terms of efficacy I, I can't really speak to that because that's that's a whole different thing um but on the other end of things you do have a protestant tradition of deliverance ministry and that's really a fascinating topic because um, Father Morth, or not Father Morth, rather, but Father Ripperger writes in Dominion that um, there are particular demons that can be cast out just by the name of Jesus, because of course the power, the name of Jesus has tremendous power. The name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. Right. So you'll have uh, different Protestants who will use the name of Jesus, and then a demon is cast out, not by their merit, but by the name of Jesus. Now. <laughs> Oh, but almost every time you have somebody who is outside of the church, particularly in, in any type of Protestant denomination, when they come across something that is really profoundly uh, evident that there is a severe demonic possession, they almost always come to the Catholics, always, because they recognize that there is a particular efficacy that happens within the Catholic church due to apostolic succession, due to the appointments of 
you know, bishops appointing exorcists due to all these other uh, safeguards that we have in place, the sacramentals, you know, all these other different things. Um, so does it happen outside of the church? Yeah, kind of to an extent, but not in the way that it's never like a full exorcism, if that makes sense, uh, with the exception of maybe the Orthodox, because their situation is a little bit strange. Um, so I can't really speak to that. But <laughs> that's yeah, that's kind of the rundown. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah, that's super helpful. Thank you, Jordan. Um, maybe you want to share like a couple stories, like when we're looking at like Friar Morth, like what are some of these like stories of exorcisms where you're just kind of like, wow, like that happened. So I think they, I think the ones that kind of catch people's attention, they all kind of lump into one category and that category is kind of extraordinary, um, displays of possession. And what that could look like is, um, as I mentioned before, there are people who will regurgitate or vomit up items that would be impossible for them to have, have swallowed. And that could be mm -hmm. anything from like hammers to nails. Um, Monsignor Rossetti was on one of our podcasts and he held up a, a bolt and a nut that somebody had vomited up. Um, and what's interesting about that is those are usually, if I'm understanding correctly, those are usually an indication of some sort of like it's a clue to help the to help the exorcist determine where the demon kind of entered in in the first place. So there's that aspect. There's the aspect of people speaking in languages that they could have no way of knowing. So you have a, a you know a 14 year old girl who is in a in a village and she can't read, and yet she's speaking ecclesiastical Latin. You know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. fluently and she's having discussions fluently. It's like, okay, well, hold on now. Like that's, that's crazy. That doesn't make sense. So you have that hidden knowledge. You even have, he's written multiple stories about um, people who will become agitated because the demon knows or can, can, they can't predict the future, but they can, they can intuit what might happen. They have an idea that, you know, an exorcist is coming. And so they get ticked and they know that they're coming and they're, but they have no way to have known that. You know what I mean? The person who's who's possessed should have no way to know that. So that hidden knowledge aspect. And then you even have people levitate, which is fascinating to me because, you know, you hear that and some people are like, well, that can't happen. It's like, well, saints levitated, you know, and <laughs> the devil doesn't have his own clay. So what does that mean? So whenever this happens, in my estimation, it's an inversion or perversion of a holy reality. So if we have saints who levitated, because of the holiness and ecstasy, of course, you're going to have a demon try to twist that and levitate a person, you know, in the midst of the possession. So these, these sorts of things, but uh, ultimately there are um, some, some refer to them as parlor tricks. Um, you know, it, it's, it's, it could be anything, but uh, again, it's, it's all focused on the reality of helping the person break free, helping the person heal from their wounds, helping the person break ties from whatever sin they may have had. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. So you're kind of thinking like people are often like when we're thinking about it, we're thinking of like these like moments of like levitation or like these kind of things. Um, and what you're trying to emphasize, it seems like Jordan is like the beauty and the holiness of someone like being like liberated from a demon, like someone right. that's been like oppressed and subjected to like uh, a terrible evil force. Um, and then through an exorcism, like they're freed and there's something like so beautiful about that. Right, right. And and as I mentioned in the beginning, you know, not every exorcism is like that. Some exorcisms are just like you're going to a doctor's office and they do some prayers over you and you might twitch a little bit and then like, that's it. You know, it's like it could be it could be something that simple, or you may have no reaction at all and you may, you know, go on your way. 
Um, so there's a, a range and, you know, it's important to know the, what the enemy can do so you can be prepared for it. But obviously we don't want to focus on that. We want to focus on that reality that you mentioned that like, this is God showing tremendous grace and mercy and power and setting people free from diabolic uh, influence and possession. Mm, yeah. That's awesome. Jordan. Um, do you have any like, like people or like, obviously you can't use like specific names, like people or like instances in your own mind where you've seen someone or like, you know, a fire from worth um, freeing someone where there's just like this like amazing, like sense of like liberation that comes when they're like free from a demon. Yeah. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll so not, not in my personal experience from a, from a demon per se, like I've never been involved in a solemn rite of exorcism. Right. Um, but I have assisted in, as I mentioned, deliverance ministry. And there's, there's something beautiful about, again, when people are going through this process and you're watching them battle, right? You're watching them realize there's something not right and I need to seek help from God. So they're being led through these prayers and they're being led through kind of reflecting on their life and they're telling their story and they're sharing their heart, right? So it's this very intimate and vulnerable place. And in that they have to be such warriors. And you see people like one of the most beautiful things is witnessing people who are in the midst of that and who, who like God shines this light and they realize, oh, hey, like, yeah, I was wounded in that way. And I need to reject that. And, you know, in the name of Jesus, I reject the lie that I'm worthless or I reject, you know, in the name of Jesus, I reject the orphan spirit or whatever the case may be. And then even deeper, they then they go to affirm a truth. In the name of Jesus, I affirm that I'm deeply loved. I'm uniquely created, you know, these different things. And you see them. Ultimately, what happens is you see somebody go in and they leave a completely different person. You know, you can tell it sounds crazy. And, and I'm very like, I, I am probably one of the most skeptical people on the planet. So I'm not like, I, I, I take everything with a grain of salt. I'm analyzing everything. Like that's how my brain works. I don't take, I don't take much at face value. I'm, I do, but I'm also like, okay, let's, let's dive into this. Right. But there, one of these things, it's so undeniable to see somebody walk into that room and even in something that's not a solemn rite of exorcism, right. Just a minor deliverance session that may not have any demons involved in the sense of like of like obsession but maybe you know they're they're being poked by the demons right as we're all kind of poked at times so nothing nothing to that level because anyway that's a that's a different conversation but so at this this tiny level they go in one person and they come out just like they stand up straighter you know they're just like real they they have they just look like different people and it's such a beautiful thing because they're they're breaking free and they're living in uh who they're called to be so i can i can only imagine you know in a full ride of exorcism when someone gets set free like what that looks like even despite uh like i've seen people manifest like despite all that kind of stuff go on um how beautiful that experience may be um, but and then again you know you have moments like i, I think her name was anna in the book where uh, Father Morth wasn't able to to liberate her, and and ultimately the the realization between Father Morth and and then later uh, Father Stanislaw was that I, I, that the possession was probably permitted by God so that she could be a suffering soul, and so that her suffering offered up for the sake of God and for the sake of you know the souls in purgatory or for the sake of whatever God has planned would 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 provide 
monumentous um, grace and mercy for for others, which is a whole different conversation. But that's just kind of the reality of the the different aspects and avenues of exorcism and and uh, demonic influence and things of that nature. Okay, yeah, that's very helpful. Thanks, Jordan. What would you say to someone who's like very skeptical of like demonic possession? Like I'm thinking of like an atheist or agnostic or even maybe the Christian who like just doesn't think that demonic possession is real. Um, what would you say to them? Yeah, uh, this sounds kind of trite, but uh, the demons don't care whether you believe or not. They don't, you know, uh, and, and either you believe what scripture says or you don't. And there are people who will say, well, yeah, that was back then. It's like, sorry, you know, Catechism of the Council of Trent somewhere behind me you know, has multiple sections on, it literally says at one point, there are people who don't believe and that works perfectly for the demons because by their unbelief, they are already in the grasp of the enemy. Like Catechism Council of Trent has some intense language and they are very clear. They say, you know, uh, the, the war with the enemy, their hatred for us is so enormous that the war with them <clears throat> is perpetual and with them, there can be no peace and no truce. You know what I mean? So it's like, it's clear it's happening every day at some form or another. And whether you want to believe it or not, like, good luck. You know, yeah, you can't put your head, you can't put your head in the sand on a battlefield. Like it's going around, it's going on around you, whether you want to believe it or not. So, and that's, I, you know, I, I generally uh, try to be as charitable as possible with that message, but there are certain things that you have to just be so clear about. Um, because as I mentioned, you know, if the, if count, Again, Catechism Council of Trent. If they don't believe, great, because they're already in the power of the enemy. It's like, ooh, I would hope someone would tell me if that was me. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, I would hope they would say, hey, dude, you need to understand this. So, mm. um, I'd love to transition a little bit and talk about like his mystic life for the sure. last like 20 minutes or so. Because um, I know you mentioned also that you're kind of like very interested in like Catholic like mysticism. Um, first off, like, what, let's just start with this. Like, what is this mystic tradition? Like, what is this? What do we mean by this? Oh man, you're getting into a topic that may be a little bit above my pay grade. There, there's the mystagogical tradition of the church, right? And so there's a pedagogical and mystagogical. And pedagogy, if I if I'm remembering my classes correctly, uh, is more of a, you know, I pro I probably even shouldn't attempt to give a definition because I'm going to butcher it so badly. Let's let's put it this way: in the tradition of the church, while there is uh, a tremendous amount of learned material, you know, you think of the Summa, you think of, you know, the various different catechisms, you think about all the writings. Uh, another one from Aquinas that I love is the Cantia, right, or Cantina, um, with all the different writings from the doctors of the church and all these other tremendous saints on the gospels. It's beautiful, right? So you have that aspect of it, but then you also have the mystagogical or, or mystical aspect where you have like the doctors of the church, Teresa of Avila, John of the Cross, um, uh, Augustine, um, you know, Therese, I believe if I'm remembering right, my again, my, my caffeine is I'm low on caffeine. So if I make any mistakes, you know, people correct me in the comments. I don't know, caffeine. <laughs> yeah. but, uh, you have these doctors of the church and these saints who, who, who experience these mystical aspects. And it's not that we're pursuing any type of particular mysticism, but we recognize that it is reality in the church and it can happen. And how do you navigate it if it does happen? So one of the things I love about St. John on the cross is he writes, you know, if you're experiencing consolation, you just say, thanks God, take it. You know, <laughs> like St. John of the cross is hardcore. So in consolation is great. And, and that works for some people and that doesn't work for others. There are other people who need to 
um, kind of uh, give more thanksgiving in those moments of consolation. Um, I don't know if necessarily discernment of spirits would fall under the mystical tradition um, from St. Ignatius of Loyola, but that, you know, discernment of spirits is a understanding of how the enemy works in our lives uh, using our own human nature. So, you know, like one of the rules is uh, never change your plans that you made in consolation if you're in desolation. So if you like committed to pray a certain you know amount of hours a day and you're really feeling down and you're feeling desolate, like don't change. You can't change. Like pray those prayers and you should probably actually pray more. Um, you know, even simple things of like bringing things to light. Like if I'm experiencing desolation, I have a I have a group chat, prayer group chat. I reach out. And I'm like, hey guys. Like just use some prayers because I'm experiencing desolation and just the act of bringing it to light exposes the actions of the enemy, whether it's the enemy or not. It could just be my own, you know, maybe I didn't sleep or maybe I, I maybe I'm hungry. <laughs> I'm not like thinking and realizing, mm -hmm. but bringing it to light is a, is a powerful thing. So, but for <clears throat> Father Morth, what's interesting is that he, he, he had moments where he had kind of, you know, quote unquote mystical experiences you know, he had uh, visions of uh, St. Gabriel of Our Lady of Sorrows, um, St. Benedict, and I think more importantly or, or more uh, infamously with Padre Pio, who, as I mentioned, was a spiritual director for like 26 years. Um, so even after Padre Pio passed, he would still appear to, to Father Morth. So those would be kind of more clear examples of mystical experience. But he, he even wrote himself. He didn't have a ton outside of that. He's just like a normal dude, which I respect because that's very much how I, I feel most days. I'm like, yeah, you know, if some I've never had really anything mystical happen. So if it does, great. If it doesn't, great. Like, Jesus, Lord. <laughs> so, so, yeah. mm. I just realized this is totally relevant, but I've been saying Friar Morth the whole time, not Father Morth. And I'm like, shoot, I just messed up. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is what it is. Um, so now looking at like Father Morth, um, what did his mystic life look like? So just as I mentioned, I mean, he, he saw, uh, again, uh, Our Lady of, or, or St. Gabriel of Our Lady of Sorrows, St. Benedict and Padre Pio. But outside of that, he writes, he never really had uh, a tremendously mystical experience it was just kind of a normative um normative life if that makes any sense mm -hmm. okay yeah that's super helpful um so we covered a lot about like father Morth and like his life and whatnot um jordan obviously like you're speaking for this book and like his life like what do you like personally like look, look most up to about father Morth? i that's a really good question um i am moved by his compassion and he, what's interesting about it, and I think this is one of the reasons I love it so much, is that he never outright says that I can recall in any of his books that he just is like driven by compassion. But it's so evident when you read all of his books and the different things that he did and the different things that he fought for and the things that irritated him. It all drives back to um, a root of compassion for those who are suffering. It all comes back to him just wanting to serve those people. And I think it's such a beautiful thing. And I wish that there was more people like that. Uh, and it's a, it's a good reminder for us as well. I mean, I, I watched uh, Nefarious recently. I don't know if you've seen it, but it was, it was phenomenal. And it, and it kind of rekindled that uh, understanding of, man, like, yeah, these people may be possessed and they may have chosen evil, but they are also suffering and we should have compassion for them in the midst of that suffering. Um, because that compassion is really key. I mean, charity, like true love, 
charity as taught by the church is willing the ultimate good of the other, right? So why would we condemn somebody who is suffering in that way, even if they've chosen evil? If we have true charity and true love, as I believe Father Morth did, we are willing, we, we want them to be free. We want them to turn from their life of sin and be united with Christ. And I, I think Father Morth just like exemplified that in all of his writings and, and everything that he did and, and all of his tactics and uh, his missions and, and things of that nature. Mm. That's such a good like lifestyle for the Christian too. When we live in like compassion and like having compassion towards other people, um, right. it's just such a good way to live because it's just it just yeah it brings it out. So, um, all right. So now thinking about Father Morris, like, what about like, is there any like flaws? Obviously, he wasn't a perfect person. Um, do you have anything that like you you look at like maybe he looked at and he's like I wish I did this better in his own life when he was reflecting. <sighs> Yeah, I don't know if he he had said anything. I do think it's important to note, I wouldn't call this a flaw, but it's important to note for those who read any of his text um, to take, you can't take, you know, it's kind of like the scripture, right? So like, what is, what is one thing that people always do that is like a no-no? They take one verse of scripture and they're like, this is the truth. It's like, okay, yes, but <laughs> what is the context of mm -hmm. the chapter? And what's the context of the book? What's the context of the time that it was written in and the tradition? Like all these things are really important, right? So there are some people who will read that Father Amorth was really um, a strong he, he spoke out strongly against the new right of exorcism. Um, and he actually got a whole bunch of exorcists involved to help kind of change different aspects of the new right. And what you can't do is read that and say, well, the new right of exorcism is bad. What you should do is take it in the context of all of his writings and listen to all of the things that he said about it and realize the reality of what his, what I believe what he was trying to do was I want to be able to help people and I'm seeing a lot of red tape and I don't know if there should be this much red tape. I would be really curious if he were still alive today. Again, he only, he died in 2016, but if he were still alive today, if he would clarify, I believe, I really believe he would cause he's, he's clarified a lot of his comments. Um, clarify like, yes, this is why I said this, you know, uh, I wouldn't be so presumptuous to say that he would agree with me, but <laughs> just reading his writings, I think that he would probably say, yeah, it wasn't, I'm not saying that the new right is bad. There's just aspects of it that I don't like because it doesn't allow me to serve people the way that I want to serve them, which is not a problem. I mean, that's like a good, that's a good um, place to be uh, being moved from. Um, mm -hmm. So that's really the only thing I think I'd warn people is just like, you, you got to take everything, you know, read all the books. Don't just like read one and think like, ah, you know, new right is bad because that's just not the case. Mm, okay. Um, what about like his influences, like Father Amorth, like who, like what thinkers did he draw on as he was like writing and doing his ministry? Like what books, like what influenced him? That's a really great question. So Padre Pio was the biggest influence. That's the easiest one to reach to. As I said, he was his spiritual director for 20, 26 years. Um, and he met with him often. So I, I think that's really the primary influence. He doesn't talk a lot about any other influences or any particular books that he's read. Um, I think a lot of what makes him unique is that majority of what he writes on is his own experience. And mm -hmm. he even writes, you know, there's like, there's not really a school you can go to for exorcism. You can learn particular things that are going to help you, but like the school is being in it. So taking his personal experience and writing that, I think that's why he never really, that I can recall at least never really said like, Oh, that book was really helpful. Or that person was really helpful. It was like, no, Padre Pio was my spiritual director. I met with him often, you know, we prayed and he helped me in, in these different ways. But everything else is kind of like this is my experience, and this is this is 
the story of, you know, what I've, what I've been through. Mm, okay. Yeah. That's really helpful. Thank you, Jordan. Um, anything else about like father Morth that you'd want to share before we wrap up here? I, you know, I, this, it's a great book. Pope's exorcist, 101 questions, um, about father Gabriel Morth. It's worth reading. If there's anybody who's listening, who has, doesn't know what the church teaches on these kind of topics, this is a fantastic starter book. Um, I, I hope he is declared a saint one day, honestly. Um, I don't know if he's in the process. I don't know anything. I haven't looked into it, but I have a hope one day that he is. And uh, yeah, I mean, he's he's just a, an amazing man who did amazing work. And and gosh, you know, there's so many people he helped set free. It's, it's astonishing. So got to pray for him and pray for his intercession. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, Jordan, thank you so much for coming on today and just sharing about like what you're doing and what Father Amorce did um, in this book and whatnot. Really appreciate you and your time. Um, so thank you so much for coming on today. I really appreciate yeah, it. Of course. Yeah, thanks for having me. And, and here, one thing, what for you, um, obviously Father Amorce is a big influence for you. Like what like books people have like really impacted you as you've kind of grown in like your faith and whatnot? Oh, yeah. So outside of the realm of my general studies, which is angelology and demonology, outside of that, um, you know, C.S. Lewis, even though he wasn't Catholic, he was so close. Chesterton, of course. Um, who, who did I read? Oh, um, The Art of Living, Von Hildebrand, Dietrich Von Hildebrand. Amazing. Uh, these, I, I feel like I'm just picking the stuff that everybody says, but truly they, there are greats for a reason. You know, they, they spoke profoundly on different aspects of the faith. Um, so those I think would be a, a huge influence for me as well as primarily just the writing of the saints and reading what the church fathers wrote on the gospels. That's like the biggest thing. So, mm, yeah, what's well, awesome. And Jordan, thank you so much for coming on today yeah. and your time. I've really enjoyed this conversation um, and I've learned a lot. So thank you so much. Um, I'm sure everyone is listening as well. Um, so yeah, I leave a link down below to this book. So I'd encourage everyone listening. You can check out this book um, and you can go buy it. Link is down below. And if you value what we do, uh, please consider um, first subscribing, liking the video, sharing it with your friends, all that fun stuff. And if you value what we do, uh, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com. This should here in Apologetics. Jordan, one last time. Thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate yeah. it. And I think the backdrop is like, one of the best I've seen. So, oh, awesome. awesome stuff. I, I took care to make my office like what I would really like. So yeah, thank you for that. That's awesome. And have a good, have a good one, everyone. And God bless. We'll catch you later.